is the Victorian Country Hour with Warwick Long on ABC Radio Victoria. Let's think about the last five or so years, shall we? We've had drought, massive bushfires, uh, pandemic and floods. Well, today we'll take a slight risk on the country hour and check in on locusts as well. And, you know, I'm more than a little bit worried on doing a check like this, especially after those last few years. But I think it'll be some good news for you to hear on the program today. That coming up shortly. We'll also have a look at the flood damage numbers as they've been updated from Agriculture Victoria. And we've continually tried to bring those details to you on the program as well. Let's check in on uh, land prices. We'll also have a look at wool markets and that news is a lot better than this time last week as well. All of that and more coming up for you today on the Country Hour, my last Country Hour for 2022. I hope you can enjoy it as much as I enjoy bringing it to you. Right now though, it's Rural News Time with Emma Field. Good afternoon, Emma. G'day Warwick. The Federal Government has announced it's committing to establishing a new Environmental Protection Agency to enforce laws designed to protect and restore nature and have the power to decide whether or not developments proceed. Environment Minister Tanya Plebisek released the Government's response to the Graham Samuels Review of National Environmental Laws and revealed a new body would be formed to measure environmental impact. The Minister says agriculture has been consulted on the change and believes the industry would be able to see benefits. We've had great engagement with the National Farmers Federation and uh, other representatives of agricultural industries. We are absolutely determined that Australia will continue to be a wealthy and productive country that's exporting our goods uh, all around the world and you know that's what keeps us prosperous. I know farmers are some of the best environmental custodians in our country and I'm very hopeful that not only will farmers um, welcome the detail of these proposals, which will give them certainty as well, um, but they will also be excited about the new opportunities of our nature repair market. Our nature repair market is a way for people uh, in regional communities and rural areas to earn money from doing the environmental stewardship that they want to do in many cases, are desperate to do. This will apply for farmers, it will apply for First Nations, traditional owners. Um, This is a great new opportunity for seeing investment in our regional and rural communities. And to the top end now, where contractors for the Northern Territory Government today started ripping out thousands of banana plants at Rum Jungle Organics near Batchelor. Banana freckle disease was found at the property back in June and is a serious threat to commercial and backyard banana growers. So an order has been made to pull out all the plants at the farm to control the disease spread. Since the first discovery of banana freckle in the Territory, it's also been detected at four other locations, including the Tiwi Islands. The Australian almond industry's harvest results are finally in for the 2021-2022 season and it's a new record. 143,805 tonnes of almonds were harvested, up from 124,000 tonnes the season before. Almond Board CEO Tim Jackson says that's despite challenges from our La Nina year and delays in processing. We were expecting more damage due to the wet weather but the reports we're receiving from our markers and process suggest that, it, uh, that they've been able to salvage the crop in, in a much better way than they thought earlier in the year. The Riverina probably had the most challenging year of all time with unprecedented rainfall since the start of the year. A tribute to their ability to keep their product dry and for the processors to be able to process that product. So there was a reduced volume of inshell this year due to the wet weather. 
wet weather and inshore does not go together. So from a quality point of view, it just makes a lot of sense to, to crack that out. So normally we have very strong sales into India, but those sales were down due to the fact that they had nearly, well, 100% um, inshore-related product, but we just didn't have the availability of that stock this year. A major mango producer in the Northern Territory is making the move into night harvesting their crop. There are still some decent volumes of mangoes being picked in Catherine and Mataranka, especially Calypso and Honeygold varieties, with about 170,000 trays forecast to be picked this week. Major mango producer Marn Bulu, Managing Director Marie Picconi, says so far it's working. We've actually expanded the farm and so it means that if we're harvesting during the day and at night we can harvest more fruit in a limited amount of time, more mangoes and mangoes just don't hang on the tree, they'll fall off if we don't get to them in time. We've also got very expensive harvesting machinery and it means that we can utilise one machine for more hours of the day Um, and it's cooler, so it means it's cooler for the people who are working out here at night, increases their productivity and their comfort and it's also cooler for the fruit which means that we don't get as many issues with fruit being far too hot when you're trying to harvest it during a hot afternoon. And staying with mangoes, producers are struggling with a price crash. Harvest in Queensland's far north started earlier than expected, while in the Northern Territory and Queensland's Burdekin regions, their harvests are running behind, leading to an overlap and a glut in supply. Machabilla grower John Nardi says the prices are the lowest in three years. Prices have come back probably $10.00 a box in the last week basically. Last year was prices were pretty strong. Crop was down quite a bit across the board for most growers and I guess the regions were a bit more separated. The overlap is adding adding to the issue this year. The good thing for consumers and our customers are that you know there'll be strong supply going into Christmas. So plenty of mangoes for Christmas, Warwick. But for today, that's rural news. You know a story close to my heart then obviously thanks very much for that Emma Field there with rural news. The Victorian Country Hour with Warwick Long on ABC Radio Victoria. Now, something we've been following quite a lot during the Country Hour over the last few weeks is Agriculture Victoria's running total of the damage to agriculture in Victoria in this state due to floods, which are continuing to move down the Murrays you've just been hearing on the conversation hour before us uh, and as you have been through the last few months too. Uh, Those numbers are continuing to rise. In fact, nearly half a million hectares of area, farm area in Victoria, has been affected by the floods in the figures that have been collected by Agriculture Victoria. If you don't feel like your numbers have gone anywhere, you can always give Agriculture Victoria a call and... uh, put those uh, figures to them so they can collect them. one 226 is that number if you'd like to call them. Uh, we're up above 15,000 livestock deaths now. 15,489 is the current official number. Nearly 2,000 livestock missing. Damaged kilometres of fencing is now nearly 12,000 kilometres at 11,773. Uh, hay or silage destroyed, so that was made hay or silage destroyed in tonnes, is over 140. 45,000 tonnes of hay or silage destroyed. Over 5,000 tonnes of stored grain has been lost as well. And when we think about what was still in the paddock, pasture loss, 161,000 hectares of pasture has been lost due to floods. Field crops, 214,000 hectares. 
Uh, field crops were lost due to flooding as well. And total farm area affected, as I said, nearly half a million hectares, 484,475 1,000 hectares is the official figure there. Perished beehives is nearly 1,000. Beehives requiring feeding is just over 2,000. And honey flow losses in actual tonnes of honey lost is at 208 tonnes of honey lost. That's a lot of honey on your morning piece of toast when you think about it in those terms. Huge figures, they continue to grow. And as they continue to grow, we'll try and find a way to bring it to you here on the Country Hour because I think it is important to continue to talk about and continue this conversation as the damage is continued, well, as the damage uh, well gets reported and uh, is continually seen because you don't know exactly what's going to happen to a crop when the water's going through it. And many of you are finding out now how things have recovered or not recovered due to that. And you can let us know how things are looking at your place. Send us a text 0467 842 722 or give us a call 1300 977 2 to give us a ring on the country hour 1300 977 2 I'll go through some of your texts coming through in a moment, but Considering we've talked fires, we've talked floods, we've had a pandemic, do we need to worry about the plague of locusts? Well, fortunately, in good news, despite sightings being reported in central Victoria and in the Mallee already this year, uh, populations of locusts aren't breeding enough to generate a plague. Luke Radford spoke to Dr Bertie Henneke, chair of the Australian Plague Locust Commission, for, are we calling it a good news update? We get some reports in from some areas, particularly over in the Flinders Range uh, in South Australia and uh, the northeast pastoral district in South Australia, as well as the lower west district in New South Wales, from, I guess, uh, the community and farmers where we have a quite good network. And they're reporting that there are some sort of individual sort of uh, population outbursts or, you know, broader or bigger infestations popping up. But given that we had all this rain, Luke, it's, uh, that's not unexpected. And there are sort of isolated populations that pop up because the vegetation is there. There's quite a bit of for, for them to develop. Uh, so that's not unexpected. What does the flood do for the breeding of Australian plague locusts? The flood does, first of all, it increases the vegetation, you know. So uh, in some areas, particularly in Victoria, it actually... Um, have a huge impact. We we can't actually do at the moment surveys because uh, a lot of land is inundated by water. So with that in mind, the vegetation is not necessarily uh, growing at this stage, and therefore it's not a perfect habitat for for locals to actually develop too. But you know, once the flood will uh, you know go away, situation might change a little bit, and some populations will will probably build up again. But again, overall, we're expecting from the data we have that the population will actually stay fairly low in uh, across the sort of the entire area. And it's unlikely that we have sort of a, a broader outbreak until maybe later in spring. So for the next two or three months, uh, we're not expecting any high-density infestations. Can the, the locusts themselves actually breed in those areas that are un- inundated? They can. And again, you know, on a broad scale, probably not. And, you know, that's what we're looking at. But there are, as I said before, some isolated pockets 
where some development can happen. And, you know, development happens over different generations and they're building up. But we see over recent years that actually the development period of each generation has slowed down significantly. So the populations are not sort of building up to the numbers that we had many years ago. And, you know, and particularly with the current La Nina situation too, that has with all the rain and all the, uh, the other aspects. And, you know, having basically still fairly low temperature until recently, that has really had a significant impact on the development itself. And we don't see high populations developing across across the range. Well, that's good news for the, the short term at the very least, but would there be any conditions that could come across even sort of this, this next part of summer that would set the plague locusts up to breed into a large population or are we pretty comfortable um, that we won't see that kind of outburst in the next sort of six months? We are actually overall quite comfortable that, that that's not happening and our modelling is actually sort of supporting that. Well, you know, it's based on our modelling really. And, you know, the, the reason for this is, as I said, over recent years, the development of locusts has actually changed quite a bit. Uh, although we have at the moment a situation where we have quite a bit of rain, but, uh, you know, uh, quite a bit of rainfall and water around, but we're not expecting that that actually will bring up, you know, a significant outburst uh, in the population over, over, you know, the next three to four to five months. Now, we, you know, that's what we do. We, we still have to continue the monitoring. And because we had trouble accessing some areas and couldn't actually look carefully what is actually happening in the field at the moment, in the absence of that data, and particularly the NIMS development at uh, that stage, we just have to look out for when adults develop. Uh, and that will give us an indication how the population then has developed. So we keep a close eye on that. But at the moment, we are not expecting any uh, significant, you know, infestation for the next few months. And, you know, that will be well into, into next year. There you go. Good news on locusts, hopefully. That's Chair of the Australian Plague Locust Commission, Dr Bertie Henneke, speaking there with Luke Radford. And if you want more detailed information, you can head to the Commission's website and look for their situation update, which has that detail for you. It's not all milk and honey everywhere, though. On the text line on 0467 842 722, Barney in the far northwest says, we have locusts laying eggs right now and it does remind us of another plague uh, that, which uh, came about 10 years ago it reminds me of that so there could be another one coming next year so a warning from Barney in the northwest uh, a couple of other texts on a, a few interesting other things Evan from Painesville says was seeing as it's your last show on the country out for the year, I thought I'd send the rainfall figures. Evan, you know me well. You know I love this stuff. 855 millimetres year-to-date, nearly identical to 2021, says Evan. And keep those figures handy because this may be my last country hour. It's not the last country hour for the year, Evan. There'll be plenty of others. The team, which you hear presenting stories like the one you've just heard, will uh, be looking after the program over the next few weeks and into the early parts of next year as well. And they'll be on the hunt for figures like that too. So make sure you're sending those ones in too. And Kevin's saying, worry, did you borrow George Jetson's car to get from the conversation hour from Shep back to the country hour so fast? No, all done from Shep, Gavin. Don't worry about that.
magic of radio thank you, and all of that. Uh, but thank you very much for your concern. Uh, 1300 977 222 if you want to give us a call on the program. Uh, right now, though, let's talk prices, uh, particularly for lambs at sale yards. The market analyst says the big gap between fat and store lamb markets presents an opportunity for producers uh, with feed on hand to buy in lambs and fatten them. Angus Brown is a market analyst with Mercado. He says there's not much demand for store lambs at the moment, and that means they're being sold at very low rates, providing an opportunity for some out there. Oh, it's everything it comes back to supply and demand. Um you know, tapes of supply and, and not much demand is the main reason at the moment. And that's why, you know, if no one wants to buy store lambs, price is going to fall. So, you know, it's pretty much what we're seeing at the moment. Okay, so the store market generally pretty low demand, but particularly those store lambs worst affected? Yeah, it's a feed feed issue, obviously, like with um, the late harvest, there's not a lot of stubbles to go out onto as yet, which, are, you know, they're usually strong buyers this time of year. Um, I know where I am, southwest Victoria, it's hardly a summer crop to be seen because it's been so wet and I haven't been able to get on and, and sow them. So that's sort of forcing some probably more store lambs onto the market and, and guys who buy them and, and finish them sort of are not jumping in because there's really grain feeding is the only way you're going to finish them at the moment. Mm, so a pretty big gap historically between the, the fat market and the, and the store market opening up? Yeah, so it's. Um, well, I had a look at it last week, and it was out to sort of as wide as it's been since um, since the drought in New South Wales back in you know 2019, sort of thing. So um, yeah, that's a fair indication that, despite having had all this rain, that the feed situation or the quality feed situation approach it says is not that great. Do you think there is an opportunity there though for people to buy some pretty cheap lambs and uh, fatten them up? Yeah, for sure. If you're set up to um, to grain feed lambs, or if you've you've got some good feed, um, definitely an opportunity to, you know, if you pick up some lambs that are sub a hundred dollars, and then you're still getting hundred and fifty, hundred and eighty for good sized lambs, and getting up towards export lambs. So, yeah, look, it's um, you've got to do your numbers, but I think there's probably an opportunity there. And as, as you say, do your numbers. Do you think maybe there's a bit of a, f- a feeling among some people of once bitten, twice shy, having having gone down this path before and then having not made any money or p- perhaps even lost a bit of money? Yeah, definitely. Like it's, um, you know, even last year, store lands that were bought this time last year, you know, people made very little money on those because the market kept sliding. Um, you really need that uh, fat market to hold steady or improve to make a buck out of it, especially if you if you like feeding them. So it's um yeah, it's just it's a fine line, but I think it's yeah, it's probably opportunity there now, just purely with the oversupply of of store lambs and and not a lot of demand around. And as you say, that risk there of of the market sliding as the season progresses, and some of the the lamb sales haven't had very big yardings, and it, it seems that there's a feeling there's a lot more lambs to come. Well, what are your thoughts on that and what's that going to mean for the price? Uh, there is, but they've, they've still been slaughtering plenty of lamb. I mean, there's been a lot going over the hooks, more than or similar to this time last year. Um, having said that, there were definitely more lambs marked this year, so so the supply will be stronger. I don't know if there's going to be a, a flood of finished lambs later on because they are they are churning through them at the moment. Yeah, but it is a, it's another risk that to worry about um, yeah, the, the finished job falling away due to 
a strong supply after Christmas. I said earlier, I mean, we were focused on store lambs, but generally store sales have, have been struggling a bit. Uh, Auctions Plus national sheep sale this week, I think close to 250 lots and around about two-thirds of those didn't actually sell. What do you make of that? Uh, similar thing. Angus with the feed situation and um, no doubt with the lamb price falling, the store lamb price falling, people are a bit gun-shy about going out and paying those big dollars that um, Scanning Lamb News or, or Join News have been making in the last couple of years. So, yeah, the demand's not there for them, apart from the fact that, uh, yeah, the, the pastures and things aren't great at the moment. So there's sort of um, not a lot of people looking to put more stock on and so they're probably more looking to offload them. That's Angus Brown, market analyst with Mercado, speaking there to our reporter, Angus Verley. You're listening to The Country Hour. And uh, I'll get back to some more of your texts in a moment. Let's keep talking and let's talk about, well, the unwanted animals that might be coming onto your property as well. The rationale for keeping feral animals off your property might be obvious and the reasons for needing a biosecurity plan might be obvious too. But did you know the two actually overlap. That's what Agriculture Victoria Senior Veterinary Officer Diane Phillips says. Uh, And she says feral pigs can bring unwanted diseases onto a property if not properly managed. Well, for farmers, um, it's important to note that feral animals of all types of species can carry some diseases that are important for livestock and or human health. And so being aware of what feral animals may be in your local area and what role they might have for your type of production and then trying to undertake a plan to reduce the risks of those animals to have any negative impacts is the point of the plan, I suppose, to try and mitigate those risks. And this was a workshop around feral pigs. What uh, diseases or what risks do they carry? Feral pigs are known to carry quite a range of diseases, some of which can have um, consequences for human health, including uh, including Q fever, for instance, and Japanese encephalitis, um, other diseases that can affect other pigs, and they are also an important um, host for some of the import emergency animal diseases that we currently don't have in Australia, but we're um, making sure that we uh, make sh- that we can deal with those risks should they arise. Is this a common thing? Do you see many cases where these diseases transfer from feral pigs uh, into a herd? It varies um, depending on the amount of contact that feral pigs actually have with domesticated livestock. And that's, you know, there's not one set rule that applies to that. So um, part of the consideration, I suppose, for producers is to consider how best they can reduce the amount of contact that feral animals can have with their own livestock, um, including types of physical barriers, fencing, um, population control measures, and uh, having good secure water sources and food sources. So those sorts of things can be considered in a plan. Um, and from the, the workshop in Benambra, is that something that farmers are keen to do? Was there a lot of interest? I think the farmers were keen to be to receive the information about it. And um, one of the messages in the plan was uh, about how they might 
start to implement any control strategies. So that's something that the the local um, producers up there are giving some consideration to. And why Benambra? Is it uh, a particular concern in that part of the world? There's uh, feral pig populations are certainly moving um, across the Victorian landscape to some extent, and uh, there are some there is some evidence that populations of feral pigs are um, have been detected in some of those areas. So I, I suppose the awareness is important to build up in in producers so that they can take appropriate action. That's really interesting to me, the the idea of moving and, and worsening feral pig populations in, in areas of Victoria. I suppose often I've thought of it as a as a more of a New South Wales thing and probably to my own detriment. So if it is particularly bad where you are, you can always send us a text 0467 842 722 or give us a call indeed, 1300 That's Agriculture Victoria Senior Biosecurity Officer Diane Phillips speaking with Peter Somerville there. On the Country Hour, we've got the full weather forecast coming up for you shortly. Then we'll go out grain harvesting with uh, some ex-military personnel. Right now, though, it's news headlines time with Rio Davis. Good afternoon, Rio. G'day was making news around regional Victoria. Grampian's Health is pausing some elective surgeries due to high COVID-19 case numbers and a shortage of staff. From tomorrow, only Category 1 and high urgency Category 2 surgeries will go ahead. Other regional health services are also reporting the highest number of hospital admissions for COVID-19 since the pandemic began. Grampians Health will contact all whose surgery appointments are affected by the pause to reschedule. A coronial inquest into the death of an Oakland's man has heard the performing surgeon did not tell the man about an error made during his failed bowel surgery. 79-year-old William Edmonds died in the intensive care unit at Albury Base Hospital on December 2, 2019 from complications after a bowel operation the month before. The inquest, which has entered its fourth day today, has heard that Dr Liu Ming Schmidt performed the surgery on the wrong end of Mr Edmund's colon. Aged pensioners and advocates are raising the alarm as more regional general practitioners move away from bulk billing. Murray Primary Health Network says 20% of Central Victoria's GP clinics don't offer bulk billing at all and only nine offer mostly bulk billing primary care. Bendigo pensioners Barry and Pamela Thomas usually go to the doctor every six weeks, but now that they might have to pay, they say they may be unable to afford it. And the Dimboola community is calling for legislative changes so community-owned models of aged care can remain viable. A Lambie elderly people's home was forced to close because it couldn't meet staffing requirements legislated under the previous government. Local Gary Petchell says his 90-year-old mother worked at the home and was planning to move there. He says they'll now need to look elsewhere, but the outcomes for elderly people moving away from home aren't always good. For more regional news at any time, you can visit www.abc.net.au forward slash news. Thanks very much for that, Rio. Rio Davis there with regional news headlines. On ABC Radio Victoria, you're with Warwick Long for the Victorian Country Hour. Yeah, last time this year, and so it'll be my last chance to have a detailed weather forecast with Simon Timkey, probably from the uh, Bureau of Meteorology. G'day, Simon. G'day, Warwick. Uh, how's it looking today around areas of Victoria? Is there? Oh, I'll, I'll get to rain. What's it? What's it looking like at the moment? 
Yeah, look, we've, we've uh, got a pretty vigorous southwesterly airstream over most of the state now in the wake of uh, that front that moved across yesterday, but particularly um, gusty uh, uh, about sort of the Gippsland coast um, and, uh, and well, near the coast out there. The showers, whilst reasonably frequent, are moving through reasonably quickly, so we're not seeing any any big totals with them as they blow through pretty quickly and they could produce a bit of gustiness with them as well. In that airstream, pretty cold conditions for this time of year too. Maximum temperatures today sort of expected to be around that sort of 8 to 14 degrees below average. So, so pretty cold air mass moving, uh, moving over the state and we are seeing, uh, seeing some little falls of snow about some of the higher peaks out over the east there sort of expecting a those falls above around 1,200 metres or so. Don't make me sing White Christmas to you, Simon, so that, <laughs> that snow is falling. Look, if you do sing, Warwick, I could do some nice disharmonies with you as well. <laughs> I think it would be all bad, really. But, it but would be. The Not snow good is, radio, that's yeah. for sure. <laughs> but the snow is actually falling. Um, yeah, look, I, I haven't actually seen any images myself, but I have heard some reports there, so I um, wouldn't expect any, you know, any really great depth or anything, but, uh, but it's certainly cold enough uh, in that air mass and the, uh, the temperatures on the ground about those higher peaks still below zero, so cold enough for it to, to settle on the ground. Um, rainfall totals-wise, up, up to um, 9 o'clock this morning, uh, the, the wettest areas were, were sort of uh, uh, about the, the eastern districts, uh, including the Dandenongs, um, but a few, a few spots picking up uh, 20 to, to 30 millimetres or so about the higher peaks and, uh, uh, and fairly widespread falls over eastern districts uh, on and south of the ranges of, of 10 to 20 millimetres. Um, since then, as I said, with those showers moving through pretty quickly, uh, the totals haven't been so great, but since 9am, uh, quite a few places picking up the order of sort of two to four millimetres or, or, or less. Uh, and I think that'll be the story for the rest of the day with those showers mostly confined to on and south of the ranges and the falls generally um, being on the, on the lower side, generally less than five millimetres. But uh, about the Dandenong Yarra Ranges and East Gippsland, there could be the odd spot pick up five to, five to ten millimetres or so. <clears throat> Over the next uh, couple of days, we'll see those showers contract eastwards and, and mostly clear. I think by sort of late afternoon, early evening on Friday, the, the showers will have mostly cleared away. Before then, just isolated light showers uh, about and south of the ranges, probably a little bit more frequent about East Gippsland, but totals lower than those of today. Uh, I think sort of generally less than two millimetres tomorrow, maybe the odd spot around East Gippsland picking up two to five millimetres. The wind's easing as well, um, so the, the warnings, we've got strong wind warnings and gales out for most coasts today, but they'll ease back and contract back to just East Gippsland uh, coastal waters tomorrow. Um, so, so a general easing trend right across the state in the weather tomorrow. Still staying on the cool side, Dave. We're still in a south to southeasterly airstream tomorrow, so still be pretty cool with uh, maximum temperatures sort of the order of uh, six to ten degrees below average still uh, on Friday. But, but things will warm up on on Saturday. Probably be a little bit of a cold start, maybe a little bit of uh, frost in the far east, bit of fog around the southwest early Saturday morning. Should be dry then for most of the day as winds turn around a little bit more northerly, bring some warmer air down from the north. We'll see some cloud develop out in the west later in the day. Maybe the odd light shower around late afternoon and evening. 
but not expecting any, any significant totals on Saturday. And then on Sunday, the next change will move across. So we'll see warmer conditions in the northerlies uh, ahead of that change, expecting the change to sort of move across western parts um, during the later morning and then across central parts in the afternoon and evening and then push across eastern parts early on, uh, on Monday morning. So we'll see um, showers and isolated thunderstorms develop uh, with, that, with that change gradually extending across central and eastern parts during the afternoon and evening. So the winds, the northerly is freshening ahead at first, so we'll probably see the fire dangers uh, uh, increase a little bit ahead of the change and then some pretty fresh and gusty west to southwesterlies coming through following the change. And then through next week, we'll stay in that southwesterly airstream. So it'll be a little bit like this week with, uh, with well below average maximum temperatures again right through that Monday to Thursday period. Chance of seeing some snow about the higher peaks as well. So uh, a little bit warmer over the weekend, Warwick, but it's not going to last for too long. Yeah, so not hot, but not a, a large amount of significant rainfall on the radar either. No, look, I think both of those statements are correct, yeah. We're not in the northerlies for long enough to really see much of an increase in temperature, but it will certainly feel a bit warmer than it has today and tomorrow. Rainfall totals-wise, I think probably the wettest days will be Sunday and Monday, and we'd be the chance of picking up, a, you know, a few spots picking up the order of 20 to 40 millimetres or so over that two-day period, but... Uh, not not any huge totals expected uh, this time. With the windy conditions, the showers will all move through pretty quickly, I think, Warwick. That's, uh, that's good to know. And warnings-wise, I suppose we had that sheep graziers warning this morning. Is there likely to be another one around tomorrow? It- yeah, look, I think we'll probably see that continue through today and tomorrow. The cold air takes a fair while to go away. I guess the, the difference with uh, tomorrow is that the showers will be less frequent. So although it will still be cold, the winds and the showers will ease. But, but nonetheless, at this point, we're still sort of flagging those, uh, those conditions uh, to, to continue into Friday, but, but not as cold or wet as today. And my gosh, the f- flood warning list has shrunk there's a final flood warning now on the camp paspi so does that just leave us with the murray murray and edward rivers which are connected as the the remaining flood warnings yeah, that's exactly right. Yeah, so the only only one of note now, as you say, the the Campaspe has been finalised. So it's just uh, just for the the Murray and the Edwards now, and obviously that's going to stay that way for for quite a while. Um, but uh, but yeah, the the list is uh, significantly shorter than it was only a, a week or two ago. So, well, yeah, and it has been for the last few months. It's incredible to to finally see that change, Simon. Really, thank you for all the the detail and uh, and the forecast today. Really appreciate it. Thanks a lot, Warwick. So I'm Tim Key, their senior forecaster at the Bureau of Meteorology, taking you through the full forecast. A bit of snow around not only this week but next, by the sound of it. Uh, really going to have to get my Bing Crosby tonsils on and start singing White Christmas soon if it keeps up this way. None of you want that. You're with Warwick Long for the Victorian Country Hour on ABC Radio Victoria. Uh, this text says, Warwick, three years ago we had devastating fires and now we have devastating floods. I'm pissed off that none of uh, Metro-based Greens and other organisations get out beyond where the tram tracks finish to help distressed animals. It's left up to locals again. Is that 
is that the case? Have we have you not felt supported through this? I'm I'm interested in that thought, and I'm interested if it's a wider thought than just this text as well. But thank you for sending it through zero four six seven eight four two seven double two. And speaking of thank you, Stephen from Kerwa has sent through information on the Yelta levy being breached this morning in northwest Victoria, uh, meaning water heading towards a grain corp site. Uh, at Yelta, the Yelta silos there. We have a call into Grain Corp. We'll most likely have information for on that for you tomorrow morning on your rural report, particularly in that area, uh, and obviously on the country hour as well at midday, uh, hoping to get more details from the company to broadcast from you there. But Stephen at Curl, we always appreciate you making sure that we are aware of stories like that. So thank you for that. Speaking of grain, let's talk about that right now on the country. Our more than 100 ex-Defence Force personnel are assisting with a grain harvest across Australia again this season. Operation Grain Harvest Assist started last year when the pandemic made it difficult for overseas workers to get into the country. Well, Daniloquin's Mark Rogan was part of the Royal Australian Electrical and Mechanical Engineers in the Army, and this is his second year helping out with the grain harvest. Last time I was out at Japarrat uh, for a family farm out there and I was uh, chaser bin driving and uh, to me that was a very good apprenticeship. I, I learned how grain flowed and how it moves and the speed and the efficiency that uh, you had to operate at as a chaser bin driver when you're running two headers and only you and large paddocks. What are you doing this time, Ren? I'm driving the semi-trailer, heavy combination. Uh, I got my licence probably 18 months ago under Project Verto, which I believe was a Commonwealth system, to get over 60s trade skilled modified and to give them other skills. So I snatched that and I'm here doing, doing this now. Based on your experience at Japarup last harvest and what you're experiencing around Ogan, is this something you'd recommend to other people that are ex-defence force that might be trying to work out how they can make a valuable contribution to society? Oh definitely this is the most satisfying job uh, one of the most satisfying jobs I've ever had to see uh, what's done and you're taking part of it and the grain going into the bunkers at the silos and then the grain going back out down to Geelong where's it going it's just you're adding to uh, to Australia's um, exports Hi, my name's Ian Bennett and I'm from Canberra. What's prompted you to come and drive a truck to help with the grain harvest? I've always had a fascination with machinery and when I got out of the army about 22 years ago I sort of fell into the IT trade and and all the job advertisements I saw through the years all wanted experience, you know, experienced headers, chasers and drivers experience and because I don't have much experience in the truck driving game so then when grain harvest assist came up I was on the course at Longrenong and from a chaser bin job I did last year I spent that money on getting a licence upgrade to uh, multi-combination and Gary Spencer mentioned it at our first um, evening briefing and uh, I just happened to be sitting next to Ian Hastings and he leaned over to me and said do you have a job to and I go when you finish here and I said no he said we need to talk and that's how I ended up here. What's a typical day looking like for you while you're here in Oyen? Uh, it depends a lot on weather, obviously, how the grain's coming off. Uh, most of the time we're just doing runs either out of the chaser bin or the field bins um, when us trucks can't keep up. And uh, probably three, maybe four loads a day. I mean, well, providing we're um, uh, not fatigued, we'll go until the silos close. But no, it's good. I like it. It's fabulous. You've just taken me from the farm to the receival site. 
and while I've been in the cab with you I've noticed that there's a picture of a crab and number 33 on the windscreen. What's that all about? Oh, I'm a, um, I joined the Army in 1978 as an apprentice uh, electronics technician and then from there I went to Royal Australian Corps of Signals and the crab is a symbol from uh, apprentices school and, uh, and in the middle of the body you always put your intake number in there and just people immediately know what it is. The work that you're doing with Operation Grain Harvest Assist, do you envisage wanting to continue doing this in the years to come? Oh, absolutely. I'm, I'm loving it. I like, I like working for family farms. The job I did last year was for a, a contract harvester. And, I much, and you're moving around all the time. And I, I think I much prefer uh, being in one place for longer, getting to actually know the people you're working for. Um, and I think Ian, um, Ian Hastings said it where you get a, a virtual hug every time you wander down the street. You know, people say hello and they give you a wave and, and all that sort of thing. It's, um, it's, it's a really, really nice atmosphere. I like it. Retired Oyun farmer and veteran Ian Hastings says he's very supportive of the initiative. Harvest is always a difficult time to find people with the right skills. And in the past, my son Michael has driven our big B-double because it's always hard to find someone on a short-term basis to drive a B-double. And, and I've always been really concerned about that because I think he needs to be in the paddock. He's, he's the one doing the planning and running the farm, so he needs, needs to see what's happening in the paddock. And so it was really important to try and find someone capable of driving the B-double so that Mick could stay home on the farm. So that, that was one of the things. And um, the last two or three years, we've had various people drive the other truck. And now Mark's got that gig this year and he's doing it well. I know that you were involved in the training that was held as part of Operation Grain Harvest Assist at Longrenong, and it's the first time that's been run. How helpful is that in terms of making sure that the participants in that program have the skills they need to be safe and as productive as possible? We were just absolutely gobsmacked that we had 18 people apply this time and some of them were as, as higher ranking ex-service people as colonels and all sorts of people and I said to Gary before I knew any of the fellas I said god where are the ordinary fellas but uh, when we got to meet the 18 people and Ian who is standing here with us is one of those um, they were just people who had finished their time in the ADF they'd um, to an extent rattled around in Civvy Street and not really found something that they wanted and they didn't want full-time work a lot of them so this really appealed part-time and from the farming perspective we've got people who are trusted with very responsible jobs in the past they're capable of listening to and and doing what they're asked and they've got technical skills so i mean from a from an agriculture perspective we couldn't ask for anyone better it's lovely to hear stories like that sometimes isn't it retired onion farmer and veteran ian hastings they're speaking to kelly hollingworth ending that report from her and if you're out in the tractor going up and back and you are one of these retired members don't be a stranger. Would love your reports from the field. You can always t- text the country out. I may not be in this chair, but someone else will be. Would love to hear from you. Send a text 0467 uh, And what a difference a week can make. What a difference 24 hours can make. This time last week on the country hour, we were talking about a huge slide in wool prices and how things were not looking good for the price prospects in that industry leading up to Christmas. But things have changed, and I think it's important to go back to these stories sometimes when this happens and talk about a turnaround, a major turnaround in wool prices this week. We spoke last week to wool broker Marty Moses from New South Wales, and 
He's been good enough to return to us and talk about the market again this week. Marty Moses, welcome back to the Country Hour. Yeah, good morning. Oh, it's nearly good afternoon. It is, an, it is afternoon, but that's okay. We don't, we don't punish people for, for that on this program. Uh, uh, well, hopefully that's the last mistake I make in this uh, report. <laughs> How's it looking? It, what happened to the wool market this week? Just by how far did the market rise? Oh, it's just been incredible. Um, you know, we've seen um, about a 40 cent movement because the market's still happening as we speak, 44 cents increase so far to date and uh, Melbourne's still selling in isolation today and it looks on the early report, we've still got 18s and 19s up over tw- and 20s up over 20 cents and as they get broader they're, they're diminishing in the increase but uh, a, a, as you said, a complete turnaround in the market um, uh, from one week to the next two, you know, as we described last week, going into the last week of selling with larger quantities and not a lot of interest from China. Um, the lockdowns were causing, you know, huge um, indecision whether they'd buy or they wouldn't buy. And obviously they'd been very, very quiet with India and, and Europe uh, sort of taking up the slack. And, and, you know, the indicator dropping all the way back to 12.24 wasn't looking good. Uh, and we'd seen, you know, over the past six or seven months, um, you know, that the uh, indices come off up to 20% on the finer end. So, you know, what we've seen this week is a complete reversal with some announcements unofficially coming through from China uh, saying they're, they're relaxing slightly their lockdown policies for COVID. And obviously coming into the holiday period, and it's their Chinese New Year holiday period in early January or mid-January, um, you know, if people couldn't go home, and that's their, their culture is they like to go home for that. If they couldn't travel, there would have been uh, further unrest and I think uh, the government have obviously realised that this is a, is a good move. Um, so they've extended movement um, for people. Uh, they're relaxing those those laws a little bit, which means that they can actually get to and from work as well. So hopefully this is the, the catalyst we need to kickstart the wool market uh, for 2023. So we've seen you know, hopefully we'll end up with a 50 cent rise in the EMI by the end of today or better. And uh, hopefully uh, next week we see that continue through with 46 or so thousand bars on offer and and uh, a bit more vigour in the market. I was going to ask you quite facetiously if uh, our conversation last week had, had fired the market up, but obviously a lot more uh, international and geopolitical factors at play. Does it highlight the reliance, I suppose, the wool market has on China where simply something like a government decision on movement of people, can have such a huge impact on the market here? Oh, absolutely. There's been so much discussion over the past uh, four or five years of the, our reliance on China and there's some, there's been some negative press on that. And, and even, you know, a funded study that's been done in Australia on, you know, moving some of our early stage processing back here, which is, which is uh, you know, still on the, uh, on the front burners really. Um, and it's, but it's more focused on the risks associated with foot and mouth disease outbreak and what would happen, you know, if we had to lock our industry down, which is an export market, um, lock our industry down because we can't export product that doesn't have a health certificate. And uh, China are very sensitive to that, as we know, with their activities in um, South Africa in the past two or three years. So with their outbreaks of exotic diseases. So, look, man, there's a whole raft of things. The other factor that I didn't speak about earlier was the currency moved in in the favour of the market as well with, um, uh, you know, the dollar falling 
quite rapidly. It rose quite rapidly last week and it fell quite rapidly this week. So that, that aided the market and in US terms. Uh, obviously, the, the big traders into China trade in US currency. So, um, you know, there, there was all the moons aligned for this week. And, you know, in the rooms, there were lots that didn't fit the specs for India and, and Europe that were really starting to get neglected. And this week, those lots made, um, you know, with China back in and the widening gap, uh, the widening specs uh, just meant, meant that people got, you know, paid a lot better and probably more than the indicators um, actually reflect um, because they don't sort of fall into the reporting mechanism. So it, it was a good week. You know, crossbreds are still hard to get excited about. There's been some slight rises down there in five and ten cents, but everything else in the 40s and 50s, we hope, by the end of the week, which and will be... That currency movement is interesting because obviously we spent a lot of time talking about how wool was its cheapest in over a decade last week um, in US dollar terms, but a one cent plus movement of the Australian dollar alone would have set that price up and now you've had the market lift itself. So is confidence back in wool? Yeah, I think the the big issue for us uh, as participants in this industry is just, you know, you lose control when a government decision stops people from moving, which means that they can't manufacture and, and, you know, there's a limit to how much they can buy for stock. I think what we were seeing is a culmination of all the world's problems on top of the Chinese um, restrictions of movement for COVID. And, you know, those other problems haven't gone away. They're still, uh, they're still obviously uh, some concern about, um, you know, discretionary spending and you know, high inflation. You know, we've, we've got a, another 25 basis point rise in the uh, official interest, cash interest rates in Australia here, and, and we know how that impacts on us. But when you look around the world, we're sort of right down at the bottom end of um, the inflatory uh, sort of numbers. So, yeah, I think we've still got some, um, we've still got some, you know, ground to cover. Yeah. But I think natural fibre is uh, looking quite good in amongst the, you know, COVID have got people looking about, you know, talking about the environment more and we've got these microplastics and we've got natural fibre that wool's, you know, right up there with, um, you know, I think, yeah, we're, we're really well placed to move forward from here if we just uh, do the right things and tick all the boxes. We'll have so, to keep an eye on it from here. Marty Moses, thanks for your time. All the best, was Marty Moses from Moses and Son Wool Brokers taking you through a bounce back in wool markets. Important to talk about that, especially after we we're talking about the falls the week before. I did want to quickly go to this before the markets because it's news a lot of you might have been waiting for. The big wet, particularly across the southeast, might be coming to an end after nearly three years of rain and flood events. The ensemble of wet climate drivers led by a triple La Nina is rapidly breaking down. ANU climatologist Professor Jeanette Lindsay uh, explains. What's going on is actually part of the sort of normal um, coming to a close of one of these events. Uh, basically, La Nina events and El Nino events as well, actually, are, are tied in with the cycle of the seasons. And as we go through summer and then head towards autumn, these events break down. And that has happened even over the last few years. We've had several La Ninas on the trot, as everybody now knows very well. Um, but each one of them has gone back down towards neutral conditions, starting about this time of the year and reaching neutral by about March or April. And that's normal. 
what's happening with the current event is that we're seeing the beginning of that weakening. So when we look at the Pacific Ocean, the key sort of characteristic of a La Nina event is a huge pool of water that's below average temperature right across from the Central Pacific towards the Americas, whereas around Australia, we've got warmer than average water and we've had record high sea surface temperatures around the northern and eastern coast of Australia this this last um, spring and then into summer currently. But underneath the surface, that's where a lot of the really important action is happening. So when we look down below the surface of the Pacific, and we've got data to do that, we can see that the warm uh, water that's at the surface is supported from below off the Australian coast, so it's mm-hmm. warmer down there too. And then over into the, the uh, central and eastern Pacific, it's also colder down below the surface. Now that cold pool under the surface is shrinking, and that has been helping to maintain the overall pattern of La Nina all these months. But that's now shrinking and the warmer water is starting to move under the surface out into the Central Pacific from the Australian end of things. As that comes to the surface, that's going to start breaking down that big cold pool. Probably around about the end of February, we should be looking at the event coming closer to neutral. It will have come off its big peak of La Nina, definitely. But look, we've got the rest of summer to go through, and it's not going to disappear instantly. What's happened in the Indian Ocean is quite different. The Indian Ocean dipole, which has been negative and has been feeding warm, moist air across the continent of Australia for months, uh, that has broken down, and that tends to break down more quickly. Mm. Um, And it's all tied in with the monsoon in the tropics and all that kind of thing. That is Professor Jeanette Lindesay on the breakdown of La Nina for you there. Let's get straight into markets on the country hour and head to Bansdale and the cattle market there. Here's Brendan Fletcher. G'day. Warwick numbers increased slightly to 190. That's 20 more with the usual buying group operating in a cheaper market in places. Quality was very limited with prime cattle in short supply. Demand remained soft from processors for young cattle. The handful of grown sold to stronger demand. Plainer cows improved while heavy beef cows eased five cents with processors loading cows for an estimated 5.36 to 6.63 cents a kilogram carcass weight. Heavy bulls eased 10 cents. A few heifers sold to local restockers from 3.50 to 3.90. Grown steers and bullocks 4.02 to 4.40. Heavy grown heifers showing good finish 3.80 to 3.94. Manufacturing steers 3.20 to 3.54. Most light and medium weight cows, 223 to 280. Heavyweights, 296 to 347. Heavy bulls, 306 to 354. This is Brendan Fletcher reporting for MLA. To Wagga Lambs and Graham Richard. Good afternoon. Lamb numbers eased to 26,400 and 17,500 were new season lambs. New season store lambs, 5 to 10 deer and 98 to 150. The secondary trades to the paddock reached 155. Prime trades to 24 kilos are up $10, 169 to 201, 24 to 26, mostly 191 to 232, to average 800 to 820 cents. The heavy lambs, 26 kilos and heavier, 210 to a top of 268. There was a good run of heavy old lambs, the 26 to 30 kilos, 204 to 240, 30 kilos and heavier, 240 to a top of 282. Heavy hoggets, 148 to 182. Mutton numbers halved and prices lifted 30 and more in places. The medium weight ewes, 86 to 126. Heavy crossbred ewes reached 198 and the best merino, 147. And this has been Graham Richard. 
Thanks very much for that, Graeme. That's it for the Country Hour today, my last Country Hour from 2022. Uh, Angus Verley in the chair and a slew of other reporters will look after you until I'm back in February. Hope you have a great afternoon. We'll catch you soon.